going to read from the second chapter together, almost the whole of the chapter. So Jonah, chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas. All the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down into the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Linda reading, trusting again the Lord to bless the public reading of his word. Let's again bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we tonight come at the close of this Sabbath day. Lord, we're mindful of those scattered from us and pray that you will help them in their various places of ministry and worship this day. Lord, we're mindful of those of our number and those closely connected to us that struggle with great infirmities of the flesh. And we ask that your presence and healing power might be upon them. Give wisdom to those who care for them. But Lord, in this place, in our gathering tonight around these familiar words and yet words with, we believe, quite pertinent application to ourselves, that you might draw near and have a word in season for us. And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. As I said last time and even the week before in anticipating these last couple of the minor prophets, some of the prophets, most of them in fact, what comes to our mind first and foremost as we consider this section of Scripture is really the many rebukes that these prophets were called to give to the nations of Israel and Judah. They were challenging the people in their days of apostasy to come back to the Lord, to honor the Lord's Word. And of course we know that in each case, both for Israel and Judah, their apostasies ultimately came to the full. And God, who had been very long-suffering, honored His own Word and sent them into their various captivities. But sprinkled in among these prophets, there are words with regard to the enemies of God's people, the nations that surround them. And we have seen one of these already with particular prophecy with regard to Edom, perennial antagonist to Israel and Judah. We'll read from one tonight, Nahum, that well is given a century after our prophet to prophesy the overthrow of Nineveh, this place that Jonah 
a century before Nahum, is sent to preach, yes, the threatenings of judgment, but upon whom a breath of reviving grace came. But then there are prophets, and perhaps Jonah leading among them, that write with particular reference and application to us. Now we read the major prophets, some of the minor prophets, but you read Daniel and Ezekiel and perhaps more particularly Jeremiah. We have those sections of his prophecy that we call his complaints. God has inspired and recorded for us the struggles of his heart and the ministry that God gave him in preaching the overthrow of Jerusalem. But Jonah is one of these, as we said, it's familiar for its own reasons and there's no problem with that. There are great lessons on the surface with regard to obedience and disobedience and all of the above. And of course the story of the fish captures the attention of young and old alike. But as we suggested last time, there are probably lessons not so clear on the surface and yet important lessons from Jonah that we need to wrestle with ourselves. He's a man of God. He's a believing servant of the Lord in days where apostasy is great in Israel. He's come, as we suggested, on the heels of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. He's of the sons of the prophets. He has zeal for the things of God and wants to preach and see things done among God's people. All of that well and good. But yet God called him to do unusual things. He called him to preach material prosperity to the northern kingdom when that was to come to them. But it was to prove a sore trial that even deepened their sin and their injustices and their iniquity. Now he's called to go and preach a message of judgment to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, leading city of the world in its day. It's a message of judgment and we'll find, we'll allude to it tonight and certainly find later in the book, it's a message that Jonah is somewhat, shall we say, fearful that God won't fulfill because Jonah tells him something of his motives in chapter 4 when we read his explanation for his flight, for his disobedience. And so I want tonight to delve into something of, well, perhaps the thought processes of Jonah. Looking first at some things I think we can eliminate, and then based on his own testimony in chapter 4, what really was underneath this man's remarkable disobedience and flight from the Lord. We read chapter 1 last week. We won't take time to read it again, but we read, as we do often in the prophets, very simply, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, gave him his assignment, but Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. That in itself is an interesting remark. I mean, of all people, the preacher should know doctrine of omnipresence. But if you look through the Scriptures in the Old Testament, there were particular times and places where this terminology is used. Cain fled from the presence of the Lord after he had slain his brother Abel. And we see other instances as well. It seems quite evident that what Jonah is doing is 
He's fleeing from Jerusalem. He's fleeing from the temple. He's fleeing from that place that God had chosen to set His name there, where His worship was to be conducted, where people were to be mindful of Him in peculiar ways. It is from this place, it's from this nation that he departs. And he goes and finds a ship going to Tarshish. Commentators wrestle with that. Some suggest the western Mediterranean, perhaps as far as Spain. Don't know exactly its location except that it was distant. Perhaps as far a destination as ships boarding in Israel would have gone. It is there that Jonah seeks to go from the presence of the Lord. He goes down into the ship. We'll come back to think a little more fully on the storm itself and even the reaction of the sailors that were in the ship with him. Hugh Martin mentioned his book. It's more a theological sermonizing over Jonah than a critical commentary. But he has an amazing chapter with regard to those men. Even after Jonah tells him who he is and that the storm certainly is because of him and they need to throw him overboard. They row harder to try and bring the ship to land. There's some nobility in them and not seeking to see him and his death somehow chargeable to them even though he'd protested it wouldn't be. And Hugh Martin's chapter with regard to that and particularly the Captain's words to Jonah, what are you doing? You're down here asleep. Everybody else is praying to their God. And Martin's chapter title on that is The World Rebuking the Church. And his remarks, quite powerful indeed. What a sobering, sobering place to be found. But I don't think it's impossible or even unlikely for such occasions to occur among God's people. But I want us to come tonight in just these few moments that we share together to delve a little bit into the motives that are driving this disobedient prophet. Jonah, as we said, is a prophet of the Lord. He owns the title. He tells the mariners when they ask him who he is and what he's about. That's exactly who he is. He's not ashamed of his God. It is not out of shame and desiring to abandon his God that Jonah disobeys and flees. As you question the motives, I say there are some things that we can dismiss, as it were, on the surface. Was Jonah alarmed at the difficulties that this ministry, that this task would bring to him? The difficulties are certainly going to be great. They're going to be those that are living in sin and ungodliness, and here comes a prophet, here comes one that they don't even have any history with. They don't know of previous messages. They don't know of any testimony living in their midst. It's just some stranger that came into town, and he's, you know, we better get some people to look after him, get him checked in somewhere. It wasn't going to be an easy ministry. You could look at Assyria, you could see a large and wicked city, which we'll see more of as we consider a second potential difficulty. And it's a city that doesn't possess the heritage of Israel. There's no former word. There's no Sunday school lessons from their childhood that he can bring up and ask them to think about all over again. It's an ungodly and untaught, 
an unreached people. It wouldn't have been an easy thing at all. There could have been a sense of hopelessness. It could have proved paralyzing. But then again, difficulties. There were difficulties in Israel. The people of Israel, Amos prophesying as a contemporary, is preaching to a people that have misapplied and misunderstood the scriptures they did possess. In some ways, those difficulties are harder. You remember, we've enjoyed a little bit of Dr. Barrett's comments intermixed in the adult Sunday school class with the film on revival. I remember one of his illustrations he gave in the Greenville Church years ago. He's a hunter. I shouldn't say this, but I have inside knowledge. I was with him. He tried to take up golf. That wasn't going to work. So he took up hunting. It didn't work for me either. Um, But uh, he's taken up hunting. And if you ever go to their house, their guest room's in the basement. I hope you're a sound sleeper and there's no lightning flashes because the shadows of some of the beasts hanging on the wall and sitting around the room were pretty intimidating. But he spoke about hunting once and where he had gone into the woods and had put the little reflectors or whatever on the trees along the way so that coming back out in the dark he could shine his light and find a reflector and find his way back to the truck. And he said one particular hunt he did get a little lost and disoriented and he's trying to find his way back and he can't. And finally he finds a reflector. Good. And he follows them. One, he can see the next one and can see the next one until he comes to a clearing, no truck, little road. He'd been following somebody else's reflectors that they had left. And so he's in worse shape then than he was when he first came to understand he was lost because he followed the wrong trail. He had to retrace that and find the right trail. Well, so it would have been in Israel. There could have been just as many difficulties for Jonah in Israel as in Nineveh. They were following wrong reflectors. They were rewriting, reinterpreting their own law, their own Bible, in order to, as we read in Romans today, those that cared pursue a self-righteousness. Many were just abandoning righteousness altogether and adopting the ways of the heathen. Jonah had been content to stay in Israel, minister there through difficulties. So we can't conclude that he thought that's too hard. I'm not going to go to Nineveh. Perhaps he is fearful of dangers. And if you turn over with me for a moment to the prophecy of Nahum that we mentioned earlier, Nahum is a whole prophecy given to prophesy the destruction of Nineveh. And there's a description of the city that he gives in chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattlings of the wheels, of the prancing horses, of the jumping chariots. The horsemen lifted up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. 
and there's a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. There is none end of their corpses. Now this is speaking of their overthrow. How awful it will be. But then verse 4, because, what brought this overthrow? Because of the multitude of the whoredoms, of the well-favored harlot, them are the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Bloody city, a murderous city. Of course, we see the pattern in Scripture where sin goes rampant and unchecked, where God removes His hand of restraint. Well, as in the days of Noah, the earth is filled with violence. That's what Nineveh was like. So there were dangers indeed. Perhaps Jonah's afraid. They're going to kill me before I can get the first sentence of my sermon out. And yet, again, if we look at Israel, there were dangers in Israel. We read, which of the prophets have not your fathers slain? That wasn't written about Nineveh. That was written about God's people. And so, danger... I mean, his mentors, the heroes in the generation prior, Elijah, Jezebel threatened him pretty well. And so it wouldn't have been a new thing. It wouldn't have been something so unprecedented and striking that he would have said, no, I can preach here, Lord, but I can't preach there. That's too dangerous. No, he was in danger there. Perhaps more so. I mean, you think of Amos, again, his contemporary that we've already looked at. Brought in on trumped-up charges. The land isn't able to bear all his words. He defended their self-righteousness. So it was with all the prophets. Jonah was in danger at home. Danger in Nineveh would not have been new. So look over in chapter 4. Remarkably, after, can we say, the revival, the stirrings of heart in chapter 2. I mean, that closing phrase of his prayer, salvation is of the Lord. You think of what we saw last time, even in the onworking or outworking of the history of redemption. <coughs> this little Old Testament interval this microcosm of the whole New Testament era where God would bless a Gentile people to provoke His people Israel to jealousy. And Jonah comes to that gospel conclusion, that gracious conclusion quoted in the New Testament Scriptures for that very purpose. Salvation is of the Lord. He can have mercy on whom He will have mercy and whom He will. He can harden in their sin. So Jonah's heart is stirred and he obeys. And we read chapter 3 of the remarkable blessing of Nineveh. But then when he sees the Ninevites repent, 
It seems a genuine repentance, a genuine work of God in that generation's heart. And we read verse 1 of chapter 4, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Jonah tells us his reasoning. He tells us his motive. He wasn't afraid of problems, difficulties. He wasn't afraid for his life and dangers. He had a more subtle temptation. He had a more spiritual problem they had to work through. I think if we understand anything of the prophets, and certainly it would be a true application to Jonah himself, they're jealous for God. They're ready to swim against the tide to preach truth to a generation that doesn't want to hear. And Jonah's mindful, God's sending me to Nineveh to threaten his judgment upon them. God's got something he's going to do. And I don't want to be part of that. As Jonah wrestles with his God and we wrestle with his confession of his motives here, is Jonah not here rather jealous for his God? I mean, we can perhaps work out two possible explanations for this confession, this line of reasoning. It could be pure prejudice. It could be lack of love for these people, his desire to see God's judgment come upon them. But it doesn't seem that that is the motivation. It could be unbelief. It could be a heart zealous for God's glory and for truth in a day in which, as we've recently discussed, truth is <coughs> fallen in the streets. That Jonah thinks, well, it's one thing if God sends me to Nineveh and he does judge them, the world will see that God's not to be trifled with. Maybe Israel will see God does deal with sin and they'll wake up to their own apostasy and to their own sinfulness and they'll return. And God will bless Israel. But if God doesn't bring that judgment, if instead He hears their prayer of repentance, if He grants them repentance, and that judgment doesn't fall, well, then who's going to understand who God is then? Who's going to have a right view of God then? Will God not then be misunderstood? That His threatenings aren't real? That His judgments may or may not come? That He can be trifled with? And so I think that we wrestle between these two possible alternatives. Pure prejudice. An unwillingness for people of another nation to be blessed. Or Jonah's 
wrestling with his thoughts of how God's reputation should be guarded, that he doesn't trust God with his own affairs, that he puts his wisdom, his idea of how that generation should be dealt with above God's wisdom, God's purpose about how that generation should be dealt with. We could easily think if that judgment came upon Nineveh, boy, that'd be great. The, the wicked people would get what they deserve and Israel might wake up and the church would be strong again. Sounds reasonable. It sounds like a worthy desire. And that's why it's so subtle. When can a noble, dare we say even a godly desire, justify us disobeying God? Distrusting God? Can we not trust God with His own reputation? Can we not trust God with His own glory and the means whereby to obtain it? And this is where I think that Jonah has lessons for us. We can have hearts for God. We can have genuine stirrings of the Spirit in our lives. We can be bold in the midst of an ungodly generation. We can preach truth to that generation. And we can have ideas about how God ought to work with that generation. I said last week in introducing our studies, and I've told the story in many form before, but in the Lord's providence that led me to spend a little longer with Hugh Martin on Jonah than I would have planned to on that very long Saturday, Saturday night and Sunday morning convicting my own mind and heart an early stage of ministry. This is what God needs to do. This is what our generation needs. These are the people He should bless. This will help the world and the church understand more of who He is and what His truth is. If this particular group comes to prominence, and maybe God and does something different. You ever think about that and just kind of do a little study in your mind of men that struggle? I mean, Jonah's among them. He says, it's enough. Take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Verse 3. What happened to one of his mentors? Elijah. When he, for those three years of famine that God had given him virtually the cause. And ultimately that confrontation with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, yes, Lord, you're doing it. I see it. And when the prophets of Baal fail miserably and the company cry out, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God, Elijah says, that's it. It's finally here. 
Revival's going to come. Israel's going to repent. And the next day, from the very courts of the kingdom, bring me Elijah. He's dead meat. Lord, where's the revival? What are you doing? And he flees. Grew up hearing preachers preach about Elijah being bold in front of Ahab and the prophets of Baal and scared of a woman. No sexism here or anything. I don't think that's what was going on at all. I don't think he was scared of Jezebel. I think he was, his mind was blown because he had in his mind what God was going to do and God did something different. And he couldn't reconcile that. He was a good man. Well, here's Jonah, a good man. And he can't wrap his head around what he thinks God should do in this circumstance and what God decides to do that's different. I haven't said it a lot recently to myself or in prayer, but a little phrase came to me once this week as Jan and I were praying. God is more concerned for His own glory than we are. And His wisdom is infinite, and ours certainly is not. And here we see this story that our children know well of the disobedient prophet and the fish that takes him up. But the heart that's underneath that remarkable story, a heart that's believing the truth, a heart that's jealous for truth to be proclaimed and believed again in in an evil day, but a heart that wrestles with letting God be God, trusting God with the circumstances, being faithful and obeying God when you don't understand how what He's given you to do is going to make your desired result your result that you think has to be the way things go not go that way we may live and exist where we're not put off by the difficulties some Christians are we may come to a point where we're not fearful of dangers we see the Realistic dangers that can come upon us in such a time. And God gives victory over those. Don't let us fall prey to the more subtle dangers. The more subtle pitfalls of letting a noble heart somehow reach out to touch the ark as it were. To dictate to God what He must do in times like ours. Instead of trusting Him who knows the end from the beginning. And simply being faithful. Even when that faithfulness doesn't make sense. According to our plan. Well let us let God be the one that makes the plans. Let's bow our heads together.
Lord, tonight we have but skimmed through the musings that we know were in Jonah's heart and some we can only piece together. But Lord, how, how easy a thing it must be for one called and so educated and used in such a time as Jonah was to yet fall short in this matter of unbelief in the true wisdom and true sovereignty of God. And so, use this familiar story to challenge us, to humble us, to make us more mindful of Your wisdom. And not even in days where events You permit perplex us to be moved from that perplexity to unbelief and then to unintended consequences and compromises. How often Your people in the past have entered into great compromise to avoid tragedies that You've ordained. So keep us from that. Make and keep us a faithful people. We ask these things and pray that You go with us in our homes and our varied occupations in this week. Bless us on Tuesday night, Lord, with our fellowship together and our testimonies and singing. May we know much of real thanksgiving. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.